Uh, good morning, guys. So been a little while. Um, turn to Acts 17. And I'm going to read the first three verses, and then we're going to walk through the rest uh, of the Scripture throughout the teaching. is God's word. Now when they passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, this Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Jesus, this is the greatest news in the entire world. Um, And just in first set, God, my heart just wanted to explode. Uh, And Lord, I'm just longing that you would open eyes to your gospel, to what you have done, that you would set us free Some for the first time, God, would you save. And others of us, God, who have turned to some other other hope that could never save, would you turn our hearts back to you? Jesus, we, we just want you. Please fill me with your Holy Spirit to teach your scriptures. Would you move? And would it just erupt in praise? Would it just, would at the end of this, uh, would we just see you as more beautiful than we ever thought before? Pray this all in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Okay, well, Sundays, Sunday mornings, I get up, try to get up pretty early, and I try to put some finishing touches on, on the sermon and then do what's, uh, what, what I call like praying myself hot, right? Uh, so I try to like ask myself, okay, I've studied some of this, I've prepared some of this, but like, why does this actually thrill my heart? Like, why, why is this good news for me? Why do I need this? And I know, I know we're walking in here with all kind, from all kinds of different places. Some of us are like, just barely crawling in here. Some of us are like, um, in a really good spot. And for me, by God's grace, man, just the last uh, few months have been awesome. And I was thinking this morning, like, I can't, I can't believe some of these things, okay? Like, the Dodgers are in the World Series. And that's right, Reality SF. Um, and, uh, like, LeBron James is a Laker. Uh, LeBron James is a Laker. We maybe have the new greatest rivalry in all of sports of the Rockets and Lakers. You can YouTube that later if you don't understand. Um, and, man, I'm married to Deborah, and that's like, um, it's just been really good so far. Had a long break, and it's going to be good, babe. Um, uh, but I'm thinking about it, and I know how this could go, but, like, honestly, from my heart, like, as I was journaling out, okay, why, why is this going to throw my heart this morning? Because, like, I mean, kind of competing with some heavyweights right here in my book. Like, 
the greatest player in basketball is a Laker again, and the Dodgers are in the World Series, and I'm married, and all these different things. But today, today, it's like we honestly have a greater king than King James. Like, we honestly do. And, and who knows? Like, the Dodgers could blow it again and break my heart, and I could... Why did I let myself hope again? I don't know. Um, and, and marriage... Marriage, our earthly marriages, one day they are going to end. They are. And so, some of us come in with, man, that's, that is our story right now. Spouses died or the marriage blew up or whatever it is. But on offer, there's a marriage. There's a marriage on offer, no matter how you're coming in here, that will actually satisfy and that's never going to end. So... Uh, so we're just going to go for it. I'm not going to give a ton of historical background, okay? Uh, Paul was just in Philippi. He got the trash beat out of him, and he has courage, and he goes to Thessalonica. Um, he's passing through Amphipolis and Apollonia, and uh, he's there, and he just keeps going for it. He's like, people need to hear this good news. So he goes into the synagogue of the Jews, and Paul goes there, and the text says he goes and he reasons with them from the scriptures. This is what Paul does. He reasons with them from this book and he explains and proves that it was necessary for, for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead. So what we're going to spend a lot of time on, and that is what Paul just did, and that is explaining and reasoning and looking and understanding essence of our faith, which is the gospel. That is what our faith is. And I want you to notice from the outset, it was the religious Jews, okay? People, I don't know if you noticed, Paul went into the synagogue uh, three different Sabbath days. So he goes and the Jews are there again and again. People who go to religious services, who are striving to do the right things, who want to fear God, they want to please God, and he needs to reason with them about the gospel. And we are, we are in constant danger. We are in constant danger of losing our clarity of the gospel. And so too our experience of communion with God. Okay, so a sermon on the gospel, specifically, explicitly, while all of our sermons should flow out of it, like it is not for first-time believers right? It's not for just the wayward. It's for all of us because it was the hope that saved us and it continues to be the hope in which we stand. There's never any other hope. You start putting your trust in something else and it will break your heart inevitably. So don't, don't tune out. Don't tune out. If you've, if you've heard the gospel, we are in constant danger and the gospel is always deeper than we thought, and is always more beautiful than we ever thought. Okay, so first thing, the first thing we see is that the gospel, the gospel is good news. It is good news. It is not good advice. It is not good advice, right? Uh, I had a little Bible study with some of my middle schoolers a couple years ago, and uh, one of the leaders, like, just gave them uh, this little liturgy thing he would do. He's like, hey, the Bible, the Bible isn't good advice. It's not good advice. And they'd be like, no, it's the truth. 
right? And that is true of the gospel. It's not good uh, advice, it's good news. This is why Paul's able to say, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you, it's something we proclaim. Something has been done for us, and that thing, it has to be proclaimed. It has to be announced. We don't gather Sunday after Sunday in order to like accrue enough wisdom and sing enough songs that maybe we live a more virtuous life or maybe we get like enough of a spiritual high for 20 minutes that we can like go on with the rest of our week. We gather to hear the unbelievable news every week that Jesus has saved us, that he has done it. Like, okay, are you with me? Um, to be a Christian, to be a Christian, it's, it's not to like vote a certain way. It's not to have uh, modified your behavior enough. It's not to come to church on Sundays. To be a Christian is not to be good enough. To be a Christian is to relinquish all of your trust in yourself, in your own self-salvation projects and your own virtue and your own sin and it's to trust that God through Jesus Christ finished work on the cross has done what you could not do. Martin Lloyd-Jones, a Welsh preacher of the last century, he, uh, he would say he often used a diagnostic question to t- determine if someone, uh, if someone understood the gospel. He'd ask them this. Uh, he said, You'd say to them, well, are you now ready to call yourself a Christian? Are you now ready to call yourself a Christian? And often they'd hesitate, and very often they would say something like this. Well, I don't feel, I, I don't feel that I am good enough to call myself a Christian yet. And he says in his book, Spiritual Depression, he says this. At once I knew that they are still thinking in terms of themselves. Their idea is that they have to make themselves good enough to be a Christian. Sounds very modest, but is the lie of the devil. It is a denial, typo, denial, okay? Guys with me on that? Denial of the faith. You will never be good enough. Nobody has ever been good enough. The essence of the Christian salvation is to say that he is good enough and that I am in him Okay, so the gospel is good news and it is either to be believed or it is to be rejected. It's not, it's not advice to sift through and like, ah, I kind of like a little bit of that. I'll, I'll, change, I'll change my Monday routine because of that. No, it is to be accepted and believed or it is to be rejected. But if this gospel, gospel means good news, if this gospel is that Jesus has saved all who will trust in him, We have to inevitably ask, well, what have we been saved from? What have we been saved from? Notice the words in verse 3 that Paul explained that it was necessary. It was necessary that the Christ should suffer and rise from the dead. So we can say that the gospel, the essence of the gospel is substitutionary. The gospel is substitutionary. That is to say it, it is necessary. It's substitutionary because it is necessary. Why did Christ have to suffer? Like we we have to ask some questions about the cross and about the resurrection if we're going to understand the faith. The cross is not superfluous to our faith. 
is not an add-on. Christ had to die on the cross for us. And he had to rise from the dead. So why did Christ have to suffer? And what was Christ saving us from? Well, Christ on the cross, he was accomplishing many things. Uh, he, he was defeating death itself. He was decisively conquering the devil. And we will see that decisive victory at the culmination, at the end of history. Um, he was showing us the example of love unknown. He was showing us this is true love. This is true love. But what the bedrock of all of these things, the foundation that they are all built upon is what Christ was primarily doing. And that was he was dying a substitutionary death, suffering the wrath of God in our place on the cross. That is the bedrock upon which all other things that the cross accomplished rests on. Paul makes this abundantly clear. Remember, he's in the church in Thessalonica, uh, planting it initially. He makes this abundantly clear in his first letter to the Thessalonians. He said, For they themselves, speaking of some other people and their reports, for they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turn, from, you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Romans 5.9 says this, Since therefore we have been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Okay? And additionally, additionally, there's a word in the Bible. Uh, the Greek word is halasmas, uh, which is rightly rendered propitiation. Propitiation, which is an old word, which is an old word, but it's one of those very significant, important theological words that we need to understand, right? And I don't care if you remember the word propitiation, but you need to know this. It means that Christ dealt with the wrath, that someone dealt with the wrath of God on sin and evil by standing in our place and bearing the punishment we deserve. This, this word comes up throughout the Bible. Hebrews 2.17. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. 1 John 2.2. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. 1 John 4.10. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Paul is reasoning with him, and at this time he would be reasoning from the Old Testament scriptures, saying, do you understand that he had to suffer? That every single animal sacrificed for thousands of years it was never able to take away the sins. That blood of the goats and the bulls, that wasn't what made you clean. Those were shadows. Those were types of the one to come that God himself would pay for your sins. 
that that suffering servant in Isaiah 53 who would have our sins laid upon him to be chastised in our place, that, that, that is Jesus. The Christ is the one who suffered for us. Now, some, some people and maybe some of us have a really hard time with the idea that Jesus absorbed the wrath of God on the cross. And kind of understandably so, I think some, uh, some misinformed teaching is to blame for this. Uh, does this, so let's ask, does this mean that the Father is the angry, hateful God and like Jesus is the loving, peacemaking Son? By no means. That is not what penal, what we would call penal substitutionary atonement, that Christ died for the penalty of our sins. That's not what it's saying. God is in no way divided in his nature. You see, the Father doesn't love us now because Jesus died on the cross for us. Jesus died on the cross for us because of his love for us. It was his love that compelled him to do it. And he didn't change the father's mind. The father said, would you do this? And the son willingly said, yes, I'll do it. Let's win back the ones who betrayed us. Let's go after those sons and daughters who rebelled against us. It was actually our rejection of God that enabled us to see his love, the depths of his love drawn forth. That our rejection of him drew forth the depths of his love for us. And what it means that Christ's death, that this gospel is substitutionary, that he had to suffer, it was necessary that he suffered the wrath of God for us, what it means is this. It means you can't save yourself. You can't fix your marriage. You can't break your own habits. You can't save anyone else. You can't do it. Christ, Christ had to die for you. This means your sin, your brokenness, your rebellion against God, all of the mess you've made in all of our religious hypocrisy, it was so bad that Christ had to die in your place for it. But he loved us so much that he was glad to do it for the joy that was set before him. So, so we, can say, we can say the words of Jack Miller that Tim Keller's made famous, that the gospel is this. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. The gospel is good news about what Christ has done in our place. Saving us from the wrath of God that our sin rightfully deserves. And the last thing we should say about the gospel for this morning uh, is this, that the gospel is historical. The gospel is historical. That is to say, it's explicable. Paul said, Paul said that, uh, or the text says that Paul reasoned with, he explained the scriptures to them. And I remember when this first dawned on me, uh, like, well, like, wait, all this stuff 
all this stuff actually happened. Like in history, this stuff actually happened. I was reading, uh, I was reading in one of my Westmont classes, uh, commentary, dogmatics and outline, which is like a commentary on the Apostles' Creed. Anybody grow up reciting the Apostles' Creed? Yeah. Leaving God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, Jesus Christ, the only Son, our Lord. Um, so there comes this part, there's come, and it's almost painstaking, this little commentary, because he goes phrase by phrase. It's like chapter one, I believe. And it's like, oh, come on, give me the full sentence. But he gets to a part where the entire chapter is just, uh, he suffered under Pontius Pilate. And the author devotes an entire chapter to why the early Christians inserted that into the summary of our faith, that it was essential that we said he suffered under Pontius Pilate. And he said, the reason this is here is to remind us that Jesus suffered under another real historical person who really existed. Like this, this helps, this helps me, this helps ground me because I'm in constant danger of thinking these are like just nice ideas. And I'm in constant danger of that when I'm doing like semi-okay, right? Like, yeah, I guess God loves me and um, I'm in good standing with him because like I believe what Jesus did. What, what this does for me, what this does for me is it grounds it in history, like, this is reality. This is reality. That Jesus came to the earth in real time and space. And that he suffered under Pontius Pilate, a real political leader. That he actually died on the cross and he actually rose from the dead. These are, these are facts to be rejected or denied or proven false, which they have not been for the last 2,000 years, or to be accepted and believed because they change everything. Like, what, what about, what do I do when I'm just blowing it, right? I said, like, it's kind of hard for me not to think they're just nice ideas when I'm doing semi-okay. Man, when I'm blowing it, like, after I've heard the gospel, like, when I'm a minister and I've read the Bible, like, what do I do when I blow it again? when I'm the most impatient piece of just a jerk to the people I love, like, what do I do then? Are they nice ideas? Is it easy for me to assent to that? I remind myself, man, but he actually died and he actually rose from the dead. A pastor named Russell Moore, um, you should read everything he writes, but uh, he, <laughs> never mind, I'd probably tell you guys you should read more, I'm not fair, um, he said this, and this was actually in an interview, so it's not even in a book, so no guilt trip, uh, he said this, uh, they're talking about uh, believing the gospel, and he tells this story, he says, I had a guy come to see me this one time, and I'll, I'll never forget the conversation, he said to Russell Moore, there's no way I can be a Christian. Uh, I, there's no way I can be a Christian because I'm just grappling with things all the time. Like, I'm struggling all the time. And Russell Moore says to him, oh, me too. And the guy says, oh, oh no, you, you don't understand. 
I'm like always at war within myself. And Russell Moore replies, me too. He said, no, no, no. You don't understand. Let me tell you. This is what I mean. If you could prove to me today that the bones of Jesus are in the ground in the Middle East, I would leave here and get as drunk as I could and have every drug I could find and sleep with any woman that would let me. I said, me too. As a matter of fact, that's what the Bible said. That's, uh, the Bible says that's exactly what we ought to do if Christ has not been raised. But do you know, but do you believe that the bones of Jesus are in the ground in the Middle East? And he said, no. That's the reason why I'm constantly in this turmoil and fighting against this inside myself. And I had to say, what you're living is the normal Christian life. 1 Corinthians 15 says, if Christ hasn't been raised from the dead, this is all in vain. Like, this is a lame hobby. Like, let's get out of here. Let's go do whatever you want. There is no God. He doesn't care about anything if there is. And just do what you want. But there is, and his bones aren't in the ground. And so we still have the flesh inside of us and indwelling sin and turmoil. But we say, but he's risen from the dead. And that actually happened 2,000 years ago. A baby was born in the Middle East. And he grew up and he performed miracles and he loved people like nobody's ever loved people. And then he died this brutal death on the cross. And then he rose from the dead. And then, and then he ascended, not before appearing to five, more than 500 witnesses, he ascended to the right hand of God the Father. And then he poured out his spirit on the church. And they've been healing people and telling people about Jesus and setting people free ever since and turning the world upside down. And he's going to come back one day. And so if you have struggle and turmoil within yourself, me too, but his bones aren't in the ground. He's risen from the dead. And so this changes absolutely everything. Look what it changes in Thessalonica. So some of them are persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout or God-fearing Greeks, and not a few of the leading women. Not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble in the marketplace, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them. And they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people in the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. Okay, so we've talked about that the gospel is good news. It's not good advice. That the gospel is substitutionary. That the gospel is historical. That is, it truly happened in time and space. And so that's what the gospel is. Those outside things that we talked about, being a Christian is not how you vote. 
Being a Christian is not making yourself a better person. Being a Christian is not doing this. That's not the essence of our faith. To be a Christian is to believe what Jesus has done, and that changes everything. So now we have to say that the gospel, the gospel, while it's not those things, it actually turns the entire world upside down. It affects absolutely everything. And that's the charge that's brought against these men, the apostles, that they've turned the world upside down. The actual charge is sedition against Caesar. Caesar, the real political ruler who everyone knows who they're talking about. Like, oh yeah, Caesar, who's doing all this stuff. He builds roads. He does nice things. Um, He does some not nice things, but we're afraid of him. So we'll pay him tribute. We'll pay our taxes. We'll do these different things. He does some really wicked things also, but we want to keep the peace. So we're going to not say anything. The, The Jews say, you are saying there's another king other than Caesar. The punishment for this Uh, has been evidence that they could be killed for this, for sedition against Caesar. Uh, And what we must say at this point is that the gospel affects how we view everything. The gospel affects how we view everything. We're no longer citizens of this world. We're no longer citizens of this world, and so we're never going to quite fit here. This has implications for how we engage in politics. In the same way that the followers of Jesus were willing at any point to say, hey, Jesus is our king, not Caesar, when there was a conflict of interest, so too we need to be willing to say at any point, if Bush or Obama or Trump, if any political leader goes in conflict with the way of Jesus, We need to be willing to say, you know what? That's contrary to the way of Jesus, and Jesus is my king, not not this political leader. This also means that we're never, since we we will never quite fit, uh, we're not citizens of this world, it also means we're never going to perfectly fit into one political party. Uh, We're going to disagree with one another about the best way to address social issues, but we need to recognize, man, Jesus, Jesus was like more conservative than the conservatives. Not an iota. Not a dot will pass away from the law until all is accomplished. And yet he was more liberal than the liberals. He was like, oh no, I'll draw near to that person. I'll have dinner with them. I'll speak to them. I'll say Jews and Gentiles should be together. I'll do that. If Simon the Zealot and Matthew the tax collector could both follow Jesus, if they could both follow Jesus, then there's room still in this church for people of both perspectives who are both willing to charitably dialogue and at the same time renounce any of their party's positions when in conflict with the clear directive of Scripture. The gospel has to challenge the way we view our politics it absolutely does. The early church, the early church was pro-women. Notice, notice all the women of high standing in this passage. Not a few women of uh, high standing. It was pro-life in the move to, uh, to take babies who Rome would just throw into trash piles, infanticide, and was constantly serving the poor. They eschewed the typical party lines 
of this world. And from the margins, they turned the world upside down. From the margins, they turned the world upside down. And so let me, let me even draw your attention particularly to the Bible's pro-women view. The Bible, the Bible speaks prophetically, prophetically from Acts, written 2,000 years ago, into uh, both what is good and bad about what's going on in our culture right now. Uh, women in the Gospels, women are the first evangelists. Uh, Jesus came from a woman. Uh, Lydia, Lydia was a... And actually, the Bible doesn't speak hardly higher of anyone, uh, anyone in the Bible than Mary. Than Mary, a woman who feared God, who obeyed him. Lydia was a key leader in the early church along with others. And many leading women are brought into the church in these passages. And yet, and yet, and so the Bible's speaking prophetically into what, what is good and some of the things we see our culture saying, hey, this needs to happen. Some of these things need to happen. And yet... The Bible doesn't eviscerate gender distinction or the beauty of complementarity. The Bible calls for husbands and qualified elders to be loving servant leaders who lay down their life for their wife or the church. And the Bible says the future is male and female together, loving one another and serving one another like the relationship of Christ in his church. The Bible, the gospel challenges the way we view absolutely everything. And at different points, it's always going to, it's always going to prophetically say this is good in culture. And it's always prophetically going to say this, this needs to be challenged. This is not right. So the gospel, the gospel, it's going for it. And it has, it has constantly been doing in the book of Acts. Uh, It faces opposition and the brothers have to like pay off the Jewish mob. Uh, to get away from them. So they give, they give the Jewish leaders some money, which, you know, it's like that's, that's actually what satisfies them, right? It's not that they just stop. It's like, well, here's some money. Okay, that's good. Later. Um, interesting what the real God is. Uh, and then they send Paul and Silas in the middle of the night to Berea. Send Paul and Silas in the middle of the night to Berea. So Acts 17, verse 10. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them therefore believed, with not a few of the Greek women of high standing as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. Okay, so... So we, we've, talked, we've talked about the gospel and its implications. And like, I don't, with this, I don't want to like just unleash another fire hose on you of like the doctrine of scripture and the necessity of the quiet time and all these different things, right? I don't, I don't want to just unleash one of those um, on you. But I want to say this. Some of you guys have heard this story before. You've heard the Bereans. The Bereans are incredibly esteemed in Scripture. Uh, they're like, 
uh, they're like the Ravenclaw of Acts, right? They're like studious, they're studying. Uh, but what makes us feel a little bit better is that they never get a letter in the New Testament. Thessalonica is the one that gets First Second Thessalonians. So if you're like, man, reading the Bible is kind of hard for me, that's okay. That's okay. Uh, but what I want to do, what I want to do is I just want to implore you to ask God to re... We have a member of our church who has this prayer, and it just, I love it. She prays, would you reignite, would you refresh our love affair with you, God? And I just want to implore you to ask God to do that. Lord, would you reignite my love affair with you and your word? This passage, um, I just want to point out a couple of things. It's incredibly uh, evocative. It, it calls us back to another story in Luke's first book, the Gospel of Luke, where Jesus opens up the scriptures on the road to Emmaus, and he shows them that it's all about himself. That every single story, every single story is telling the story of Jesus. And so I just want to tell you guys, this entire book, it's about Jesus. From the first promise that there would come one who would crush the head of the serpent in Genesis 1, to the story in the middle of the Bible about King David going to fight Goliath, who is clothed in armor like scales, scaled armor, who defeats him and actually cuts off his head, to Jesus himself facing the serpent in the wilderness to that day when Jesus is going to throw the serpent into the lake of fire, it's all telling one story. And that's just one example of the story it's telling throughout all of Scripture that every single story in here whispers his name. That these are claims that can be investigated, that can be looked into. That's what the Bereans are doing. It, this isn't something that, hey, if, you have, if you're new here, you're doubting or you're not sure what to believe, just have some faith. Just have this empty, blind trust. That's not what faith is. Faith is grabbing hold of something real that has actually happened and saying, this changes everything about my life. So look into these things like the Bereans did. And I just want to tell you, like, there's this, there's this great quote from Martin Luther uh, who said, he said of himself, I'm just one beggar telling another beggar where I found bread. Right? I'm just standing here and testifying, man, when my life was completely blown up and wrecked and I couldn't fix a single thing, God met me here. God met me here. And he opened my eyes. God's Holy Spirit opened my eyes to be able to understand this is about Jesus. And that the way he loved Abraham and he forgave Abraham and he loved Abraham in the way that he was faithful to every single person in this book is the way that he's still faithful to us now, to all who would believe in him. So, I, I mean, I have three things for you. I would say, ask the Holy Spirit for help. Like, seriously, if God's given us his spirit, let's ask his spirit for help in drawing us in and inclining our hearts. I'd say if you don't have a good translation or a good study Bible, you need a study Bible, just grab an ESV study Bible. Grab a Zondervan NIV study Bible. Those things are great. There's so many passages. I'm like, what does that mean? And the study notes aren't 
aren't scripture, right? But they're really helpful. Like if we need help in understanding or you're like, I can't even dive into that. Seriously, what started opening my eyes so much was you guys ever read the Jesus storybook Bible? Oh my gosh. It's like, oh, every single time, like you got me again. I didn't see how that was about Jesus. It's so good. Um, and carve out the time. Carve out the time. You, you, we can carve out the time, but ask God, Lord, draw me back. Draw me back into a love affair with you. He moved heaven and earth to come after you. Jesus loves you so much. He died for you. You rejected him and he said, I'm coming after you and I still love you. He died for you while you were his enemy. Nothing, no sin you've done has surprised him. There's nothing he's not willing to forgive freely. Not work your way out of this and then maybe you can come into his presence. So that's what we're going to do right now. And please be free. Be free in worship. If you want to shout, shout. I'm like introverted, grew up in not the most charismatic church, right? But like, I just found myself when Pui launched that home run yesterday, I freaked Deborah out because I was just like, yes! And my entire apartment complex was probably like, what is this guy? But like, it's something innate within us, right? And when I found out LeBron was a Laker, (laughs) I think Deb thought somebody had died when I'm looking on my phone. I'm like, no way! I can't believe this. But that the God of the universe came for me? Like, I'm unlovable. The things I've done, the ways I've behaved, the ways I've been such a hypocrite, like not even typical sinner, like I'm secretly sinning in all of these ways and he came after me and he loved me then. So let's worship him and let's sing to him and there's nothing else you need to trust than what Christ did for you. Let's pray. Lord, I do just ask that praise would just erupt um, in this place. Pour out your spirit. Would we leave trusting in only what you've done? And we just, we love you, Lord. We love you. And people need to know. People need to know. So fill us and just send us out into the world. In Christ's name, amen.